Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at some of Tender Buttons, the sequence Tender Buttons by Gertrude Stein. Now before I lay down the biographical details and the cultural context of this poem or this sequence of prose poems that we're going to look at, can you allow me the luxury of a quick apology, especially if you're a regular listener, or six of you, I know it's more than that, but I'm being self-deprecating. It's been a while, isn't it? It's been a couple of weeks since I posted one of these, so I felt I owed anyone who was expecting something, I, I feel I owe you a very quick explanation, so... um the first week where I didn't deliver this podcast, it, it was simply a case of there was a lot on my plate. I did my research. I did a lot of stuff. I had a lot of things to do around the house. I had a lot of things to do with my family. I had a lot of things to do in my other jobs. And I simply got to the point when it was time to record that it just wasn't good enough. It just wasn't going to be good enough. I wasn't ready and I didn't want to put something rubbish out to you guys. So I used the next week to try and think about how my routine, how I make this podcast, because certain aspects of it are really time consuming. And I wondered how I could even those out, iron those out. So I have changed things a little bit and um, I, I recorded this a week ago so my first was to, to try a new way of recording this podcast that was going to involve a bit less work on the technical side of things and I did this great oh, hour and 10 minutes I wouldn't shut up I was prattling on about Gertrude Stein and cubism and modernism and then I lost a recording the recording just vanished it, it mainly involved me trying to multitask on a two gigabyte iPad uh, so you, some of you will understand why that's stupid, others don't. But let's just say not a lot of memory, don't want to run too many tasks at the same time because it might forget technically about one of the tasks it's, tasks it's doing. And that's kind of what happened with my recording. So I did this great recording and it just went, boom, it just vanished. And um, I guess it just finalised this feeling I've had for a while that my life is just an elaborate work of performance art for an audience of one. But it was still fun doing it and I, I kept my spirits up. I treated it like a dress rehearsal. But then I thought, OK, another week of me not delivering anything. Sorry, I think I did a few apologetic tweets. We're here now because I think I have worked out how to do this in a way that won't consume as much of my time, in a way that will make it easier for me to do and a way that will keep me being regular with this podcast so there's a few things you might notice a bit different for now i'm recording in my office so you might hear a bit of traffic noise and stuff from the street outside but i think i'm not too worried actually a bit of ambient noise is all right isn't it it's not too distracting if it's a nice little hum in the background so i'm gonna i'm gonna leave all that in um but that's all you have to know look that's enough so i apologize again i apologize if i have disappointed anyone but but Rusty Sonnet, it's back on track and I, I, I have so many poems to share with you guys and talk to you guys about. I don't care how many listeners I have. I don't care how big this podcast gets. I just need to talk about these parts. I need to make these things and I've got a very long list to get through. And this ain't finishing until I got through the preliminary list, at least. Let's talk about Gertrude Stein. Enough rubbish from me. Thank you for listening to, to my mea culpa there. 
So Gertrude Stein was seen as a sort of a major fi- a major figure in early modernism. She was a writer. She was a poet. She was a novelist. She was a sort of socialite. She was a person who provided the glue that brought a lot of modernists together in Paris. She was also an art collector. So she knew a lot of these artists and she bought works of art from them. And these turned out to be some of the most valuable works of art going. Now you might know Gertrude Stein from perhaps her texts. Her most famous ones are Tender Buttons, which we're going to look at today. Although Tender Buttons was never really big in its own time. It was more big in its accumulating influence on the works and the artists that came after it. So the Tender Buttons was one big one, but the other one, and I forgot the full title already, but it was something like the autobiography of um, Alice B. Toklas. Now, it was written as an autobiography by Gertrude Stein of, of her own life as, as one of these sort of bohemian types living in Paris uh, in the early 20th century. But actually, that, the name that she chose was the name of her partner that she lived with, and that was Alice B. Toklas. So they, they were two gay women living together in Paris at the beginning of the 20th century. Gertrude Stein was um, born in the in 1874 she died in 1946 she was born um, and grew up in america she was born i think in pittsburgh and then she spent most of her time growing up in oakland california now she studied i think she studied psychology um in in um, when she was well, she was a student she studied psychology under william james the great william james at radcliffe college and then in 1903, she moved to Paris. Uh, she met Alice B. Toklas, I think, a, a few years after that, something like in 1906, and they remained together for the rest of their life. You might also know Gertrude Stein from a portrait of her by Pablo Picasso. And what's interesting about this portrait is Picasso had been through his blue period and his rose period. This was 1906, I think, that this was painted. I can't remember the exact date. So, um, yeah, he painted this painting and people noticed it didn't really look like her. And now people look at this painting, this portrait of her, and it shows the marks, just the angles, the sort of the chunkiness of her face, the way it sort of exists as a shape in the space of a canvas. But it really looks like a precursor to Cubism, that these ideas about Cubism were beginning to take shape within Picasso. And you could say that, that Cubism is, is seen in many ways as the birth of as part of the birth of modernism in the visual arts, at least. Picasso, Matisse... Braque, lots of early modernist painters frequented the salons that would take place at Gertrude Stein's house. So she would have these salons where great writers and artists and painters would would converge and talk and exchange ideas. Alice B. Toklas would normally take the wives, take the ladies, and take them to entertain them in another room. And then Gertrude Stein would convene with these these mainly great men of letters and art and music and so yeah some of the names just to mention a few Ernest Hemingway F Scott Fitzgerald Ezra Pound Apollinaire um, and yes Picasso Matisse and and George Braque so she she was there at the beginning of all these great modernist movement movement she was meant to have I can't remember if she knew him but she certainly inspired James Joyce as well she really knew them all so 
this salon was this great place where people would get together and their minds would meet. And I think that's one reason why her autobiography was so popular of Alice B. Toklas, who was really her, just using her girlfriend's name, her partner's name, I should say. Girl, girlfriend sounds so flippant, doesn't it? So, and that was the, um, it was, you know, this very romantic insider's view of his life among the artists in Paris. You can see why that would be so popular. Now, we're not here to look at that autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. We are about we are about to look at Tender Buttons. And Tender Buttons is a um, a series of, of prose poems. It was published in 1914 by Claire Marie Editions. I'll talk we'll get onto the idea of who Claire Marie Editions were and whether there was a Claire Marie. But let's talk about and then we'll get onto the poems, I think. So so and, and how they relate to cubism. So the 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 the, the uh, publisher approached her and she'd published she'd basically paid for her own work to be published before that so the publisher approached her and asked if she wanted to submit something i think they wanted one of her plays she was a playwright but and she was going to give him one of her plays but it hadn't been staged yet and she didn't think it was right to publish it as a text before it's been staged so this other sequence that she was working on this sequence of prose poems this little book called tender buttons she gave to them instead now, it turns out that Claire Marie Editions was, wasn't quite the big fancy pants publisher that it was making itself out to be to her through their correspondence. It was run by a man called Donald Evans. And now, the one of the essays that I've got a lot of good information from, and I, I want to shout it out, is by Joshua Schuster. It's from Jacket 2, and it's called The Making of Tender Buttons. Um, a lot of really helpful information for me there. So if you want to read up more on this, look at look that up. Jacket 2, jo Joshua Schuster. And so one thing I would maybe take issue with is he describes... Claire Marie Editions as a vanity publisher. Um, his re reasoning for calling it a vanity publisher is because it was just this gentleman, um, Donald Evans, publishing, I think, himself and his mates, and that was it. And I can see why that is a vanity publish can be seen as vanity publishing. But vanity publishing is a little bit different. Vanity publishing is something where a publisher basically runs a publisher and accepts all submissions, just accepts all of them, says, oh, you're accepted. And now you can buy copies of this book for yourself and all your friends at these vastly inflated prices. That's vanity. Vanity publishing is when they'll always say yes. I don't think he was a vanity publisher. He was just starting out. Now, he might have been a bit of a, been a, bit of a chancer. He might have been a bit of a... Um, uh, uh, let's say a person who uh, told a few stories and a few porcupines in here and there, but he, um, uh, you know, most a lot of publishers start off publishing sometimes themselves and their mates. It happens a lot. It happens a lot that way. I'm sorry, but even at the biggest levels of the establishment, it normally is just someone and their mates. Still, that doesn't really change. Believe me, I've I've been close enough, close enough to the stink of it in my own life to to know it when I see it so oh, i'm getting all controversial here so let's get back onto tender buttons so he did publish it i think she might have even been under the apprehension apprehension that there was a real claire marie and it was a woman running it as well she might be more drawn to being published by a woman and that might have worked in the favor of donald evans but ultimately no there was no person called claire marie involved in it in fact he named it after a famous actress I like to say actor instead of actress, actually. So a famous actor at the time. Let's talk about the books. Oh, yeah. Also, 
Um, another thing is a big thing is made up about, made about the order of tender buttons and some parts of the book. So we're going to read from the opening of the book. You'll find that on poets.org as well, this sort of opening chapter object. So I'll only read through part of it. I won't read the whole opening part of the book. But the order of the three books was very haphazard and it was more chosen by the publisher himself. But it was almost done in a more accidental sense. I think she gave him these three um, three these these free little free books that would make up all of tender buttons and if i remember right um it, it, it the three books were objects food and rooms but it, i think it was meant to i think rooms was meant to be the first i can't remember but anyway the order was chosen that way it got published that way and it seems to be that's the order that's been kept so people often look at this opening sequence as something that is setting out setting out the, the 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 manifesto of the poem setting out the statement of the poem so that we can carry on reading it in that spirit but that's not really the case or that wasn't intended in in when it was written anyway it's just the way that we've come to receive it and we commonly receive it now so the other thing the other thing i want to say quickly about this poem it's no this is about the whole poem really is it's it's intended as a piece of cubist writing now i don't know if you know what cubist painting is i've already spoken about Braque and picasso and others like one gris but if you don't know cubism it was an early modernist some people might say pre-modernist i mean it's right at the beginning of modernism and it's it's a piece where, um, or it's a kind of painting where often it, it would be paintings perhaps of, of cities, perhaps of still lives, perhaps of people. They often had quite a brown quality, almost as if it's echoing the environment of Paris, where lots of these artists were based when Cubism took off. And what it shows is multiple views multiple ways around the object so perhaps the side and the front and the back of the object is visible at the same time and it feels quite fragmented um we didn't have this at the time but you could almost compare it to one of those weird i don't know if you've ever made a photo sphere with your mobile phone when you just have the camera on and you you move it around and it takes little pictures and then stitches them together so that you can spin it round and look up and down and it's more like a weird 3d spherical object rather than a flat image but it sometimes makes mistakes in how it stitches the images together and it looks quite strange they're quite jarring and um, the whole painting in a cubist painting can often look like that now there were different forms of cubism there was uh, analytical cubism and geometric cubism later versions of cubism used more collage and stuff like that mixing other materials in with the paint because cubism really stressed the idea that there are many ways of, of not just that there are many ways of looking at something but also that the many ways are often present in that moment when we are looking at it and what we are experiencing doesn't have you know if we're thinking about still lives and paintings that went on before that more traditional ones we're not really in that place yet now I mean, one one influence on Cubism was um, Cezanne, and but his and he in many ways, I don't know if he did it intentionally, but some of his ideas were in his work. For instance, there's a a still life with a bunch of objects. I can't remember a bottle and I don't know bread and fruit. Usual still life gubbins is arranged on a table, and the table. If you look at the level of a table behind one of the objects, like a bottle, 
the table level is actually it's at different levels on either side of a bottle so the, the 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 edge of a table is actually higher up on one side of a bottle and then it's lower down on the other side of a bottle so it might be unintentional but it might have been just this more impressionistic way in which Suzanne was painting and he was looking at one thing here and then looking at another thing there but cubism really ran, ran with that thing wouldn't we call it parallax I think when two things are sort of seen at the same time I think so so um one so a good way of understanding it actually is and again the cubists wouldn't have known this but the eye darts around a lot more than we think it does and the reason why is because when um so there's a certain kind of eye eye music eye move eye music i like that eye music that's the name of my next book of poems eye movement where the eye kind of just juts around in its socket looking at different things at the same time and some of these movements are tiny they're tiny and twitchy and you never notice it yourself. One reason why is because the brain actually, brain activity decreases in some of the visual fields in the moment when the eye moves. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because you don't want to be, have this jarring kind of zooming about. So we have this idea that we're sometimes looking at a sort of wide canvas in our own life. But actually we're, we're often, our peripheral vision is not very good. And it's more that the eye is moving about everywhere, which is giving us this sense of this complete image. But there isn't really that sense at all. It's just this how we experience it. Um, if you want to watch your eye doing saccades, I discovered this myself. Get your phone camera, switch it into portrait mode and hold it as close to your eye as possible and just look. And you're just looking at your eye, but you'll start seeing these little movements. So the, the eye's moving around tiny bits, probably because you're looking from when you're looking at your own eye on your phone screen about a couple of inches from your face or wherever you can focus on it. You're looking at different bits of the eye. Um, and and you can see the movement of your eyeball. You don't see this when you look in the mirror because it's sort of an illusion. But but when you're kind of looking at your eye off center, you can see it, and it's quite spooky. But your eye does this all the time, and you don't even know. God, that was a lot of speech about nothing, wasn't it? So that's what cubism did. How does this relate to Gertrude Stein and tender buttons? Gertrude Stein has these are prose poems. These are poems, prose poems where the the line breaks are chosen by the printer or the word processor rather than the poet themselves choosing choosing to meaningfully break a line. So they're written as paragraphs, normal prosaic or prose. They're, they're not. They're certainly not prosaic, but but normal prose paragraphs. So she writes these paragraphs. And these paragraphs are a little bit like still lives. It's like she's looking about a room that she's in. So if we look at the one which is objects, they really are little objects. We know they're objects from the titles. Now, the the, <laughs> the, the paragraphs that follow them, the little prose poems can seem quite incoherent. This is what you'll notice. Firstly, they they don't really work as sentences. It's like she's breaking down the grammatical sentence for a start. And secondly... We're not sure what the focus is. Now, there's some partial reasons why she does this. that I'll go into more after I've read the poem. But one reason is that she, well, let's just say that she, she, she I think she's intentionally built these sentences and these paragraphs so that we find our own meanings within them. And I, I want to make this very clear. This is what's important about this reading to come is that I'm going to read it out and it's not going to make sense. It's not going to make sense. And when I explain the poem afterwards, I won't be able to tell you the sense it was meant to make, as I have with other poems that are perhaps difficult. But there is an argument 
unfolding within the poem that isn't perhaps apparent on the first readings this is different there's no argument there's no this is not a riddle this is not something that makes less sense but then you find a key and you suddenly sort of unlock like some rosetta stone the logical argument that lies beneath it all these this poem is is intentionally opaque it is it is meant to be that you have your own experience and your own meanings when you read it out so because of this you might have one of a few reactions and i'm not going to read loads of it but you might have one of a few reactions when you hear me reading it you might just get angry you might just go what is this rubbish it makes no sense this is pretentious rubbish why should i indulge this this is tedious you might find it really tedious i'll try my best to be all lively and you know even though i won't be understanding the poem myself as i read it out okay that's another thing to think of so if i do sound like i'm really giving it some onus and meaning it's literally me just playing it it might as well just me be being a jazz musician i'm just playing the poem with my voice that's the best way I can describe it. So that's how I'm going to read it. Don't expect to make immediate sense of it. Another thing that you might get is you just might find it funny. It might just sound really silly and it might make you giggle, which is fine. I'm happy. I'm happy. Why not? A giggle's good, isn't it? When everything's going mental in the world right now, it's always time for a good giggle. Or you might relax. Try and Don't worry about understanding it. Don't worry about drifting in and out of it either. If you're just half asleep thinking of something for 30 seconds, the great thing about this is just drop back in. Have a listen. What images does it create? What ideas pop up in your head as you listen to me reading it? That's what it's really about. So I just say chill. Listen to it perhaps with a lightness rather than a full-on analytical intensity. And just let whatever comes through from the poem into your mind and whatever meanings might pop up from this poem, just let them happen. Yeah, that's how I read it. That's how I'm going to read it out. Now, hopefully that's how you'll listen to it. So I hope that's given you enough background and I hope that's prepared you to listen to a more avant-garde modernist. And even actually there are certain ideas of postmodernism. I'll go on about that later in this poem. So for now, I'm just going to read the poem. Tender Buttons by Gertrude Stein Part 1. Objects A carafe that is a blind glass A kind in glass and a cousin, a spectacle and nothing strange, a single hurt colour and an arrangement in a system to pointing. All this and not ordinary, not unordered, in not resembling. The difference is spreading glazed glitter nickel what is nickel it is originally rid of a cover the change in that is that red weakens an hour the change has come there is no search but there is there is that hope and that interpretation and sometimes surely any is unwelcome sometimes there is breath and there will be a sinecure and charming very charming is that clean and cleansing certainly Glittering is handsome and convincing. There is no gratitude in mercy and in medicine. There can be breakages in Japanese. That is no program. That is no colour chosen. It was chosen yesterday, but showed spitting and perhaps washing and polishing. It certainly showed no obligation, and perhaps if borrowing is not natural, there is some use in giving. 
a substance in a cushion. The change of colour is likely, and a difference, a very little difference, is prepared. Sugar is not a vegetable. Callous is something that hardening leaves behind that will be soft if there is a genuine interest in their being present as many girls as men. Does this change? It shows that dirt is clean when there is a volume. A cushion that has a cover, supposing you do not like to change, supposing it is very clean that there is no change in appearance, supposing that there is regularity and a costume, is that any the worse than an oyster and an exchange? Come to season that is there any extreme use in feather and cotton? Is there not much more joy in a table and more chairs and very likely roundness and a place to put them? a circle of fine cardboard and a chance to see a tassel what is the use of a violent kind of delightfulness if there is no pleasure in not getting tired of it the question does not come before there is a quotation in any kind of place there is a top to covering and it is a pleasure at any rate there is some venturing in refusing to believe nonsense it shows what use there is in a whole piece if one uses it, and it is extreme, and very likely the little things could be dearer, but in any case there is a bargain, and if there is, the best thing to do is to take it away and wear it, and then be reckless, be reckless and resolved on returning gratitude. Light blue and the same red with purple makes a change. It shows that there is no mistake. Any pink shows that, and very likely it is reasonable. Very likely there should not be a finer fancy present. Some increase means a calamity, and this is the best preparation for three and more being together. A little calm is so ordinary, and in any case there is sweetness and some of that. A seal and matches and a swan and ivy and a suit. A closet. A closet does not connect under the bed the band if it is white and black the band has a green string a sight a whole sight and a little groan grinding makes a trimming such a sweet singing trimming and a red thing not a round thing but a white thing a red thing and a white thing the disgrace is not in carelessness nor even in sewing it comes out out of the way what is the sash like? The sash is not like anything mustard. It is not like a same thing that has stripes. It is not even more hurt than that. It has a little top. A box. Out of kindness comes redness, and out of rudeness comes rapid same question. Out of an eye comes research. Out of selection comes painful cattle. So then the order is that a white way of being round is something suggesting a pin, and it is disappointing. It is not. It is so rudimentary to be analysed and see a fine substance strangely. It is so earnest to have a green point, not to red, but to point again. A piece of coffee. More of double. A place in no new table. A single image is not splendour. Dirty is yellow. A sign of more in not mentioned. A piece of coffee is not a detainer. The resemblance to yellow is dirtier and distincter. The clean mixture is whiter and not coal colour. Never more coal colour than altogether. The sight of a reason, the same sight slighter, the sight of a simpler negative answer, the same sore sounder, the intention to wishing, the same splendour, the same furniture.
The time to show a message is when too late and later there is no hanging in a blight. A not torn rosewood colour, if it is not dangerous than a pleasure, and more than any other, if it is cheap is not cheaper. The amusing side is that the sooner there are no fewer the more certain is the necessity dwindled. Supposing that the case contained rosewood and a colour, supposing that there was no reason for a distress, and more likely for a number, supposing that there was no astonishment, it is not necessary to mingle astonishment. The settling of stationing cleaning is one way to shatter, scatter and scattering. The one way to use custom is to use soap and silk for cleaning. The one way to see cotton is to have a design concentrating the illusion and the illustration. The perfect way is to accustom the thing to have a lining and the shape of a ribbon and to be solid, quite solid in standing and to use heaviness in mourning. It is light enough in that it has that shape nicely very nicely may not be exaggerating very strongly may be sincerely fainting may be strangely flattering may not be strange in everything may not be strange to dirt and not copper dirt and not copper makes a colour darker it makes the shape so heavy and makes no melody harder it makes mercy and relaxation and even a strength to spread a table fuller there are more places not empty they see cover nothing elegant a charm a single charm is doubtful if the red is rose and there is a gate surrounding it if inside is let in and there places change then certainly something is upright it is earnest mildred's umbrella a cause and no curve, a cause and loud enough, a cause and extra, a loud clash and an extra wagon, a sign of extra, a sack, a small sack and an established colour and cunning, a slender grey and no ribbon. This means a loss, a great loss, a restitution. A method of a cloak. A single climb to a line, a straight exchange to a cane, a desperate adventure and courage and a clock, all this which is a system, which has feeling, which has resignation and success, all makes an attractive black silver. A red stamp. If lilies are lily white, if they exhaust noise and distance and even dust, if they dusty will dirt a surface that has no extreme grace, if they do this and it is not necessary, it is not at all necessary, if they do this they need a catalogue. It carries on but I'm going to stop there. Okay, so <laughs> in the phrase of, of tedious university lecturers everywhere, let's unpack this, shall we? As I said before, there's not much for me to unpack in one sense. I can't... Normally, at this point, after reading the poem, I give you a sense of what the argument is of the poem. I haven't got the foggiest what the argument of this poem is. I don't know. I don't think I'm meant to know. And I'm all right with stuff like that. It can really get on other people's nerves. I know it does. I know people really hate opaque works of art. But uh, I, I quite like it. I quite like ambiguity. I quite like it when a work of art has a little bit of trust in me, in the reader, to find my own meaning and my own experience within it. And it was quite fun reading out those lines. As I read them without... It was quite instinctual. I had no real intellectual or conceptual understanding of most of the stuff that I was saying. 
but I still felt this way of reading it. You know, my voice took on different tones. Um, I think some of that is just the shape of the language, the way that she's crafted them. It feels like a very matter-of-fact voice that is speaking in the poem, and the images can feel quite precise. Now, I think a good way to start with this, to really look at how these effects are created and why she went for these effects is um that um let's look at the title tender buttons now here's 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 where the cubism comes in so if if we if a cubist object of it is being is is that is being investigated is the button how do we find the different viewpoints of it now one way of finding the different viewpoints of that button is to place an adjective next to it i mean that button that object place an adjective next to it that is not normally associated with that object and what can sort of fire off what kind of associations how does it how does it change the object so when we put the word tender next to buttons i mean buttons are just these really straight away you'll just think of buttons that you can hold in your hand and you can think of something that's just you just think okay buttons yeah they're just just little dumb objects that we have in our lives you know they're they're, they're on our coats on our shirts they're on things here and there nowadays we might think about buttons on technology maybe that's a that's something even though it seems to be that technology is becoming even more button free now that we have alexa and touch screens and stuff like that so but but i'm sure they had those kinds of buttons back then 1914 for some stuff i don't know maybe not as much but i think buttons at that time would have been more of the buttons that we associate with clothes still normal normal objects really that we don't give much attention to um, but you stick tender next to them and now you start making these associations now this is helped by the fact that tender is a word it's not just a verb but it, it can be a noun and it's actually a word with plenty of meanings and not just plenty of meanings if we just spell it out and look up dictionary definitions of tender but also when we think about things that sound like it things that it might be a pun on so we look at tender buttons and immediately we think perhaps the first thing is tender gentleness. I'm being, you know, love me tender, being gentle, being tender, tender buttons. So what does that mean? Is it just nonsense to say that, that our buttons are gentle against our skin, against our bodies when we wear our clothes or are the buttons? Is this something more sensual? You know, again, pressing a button, tender buttons. We think about perhaps our own, our own bodies, our own special little zones that go a bit crazy when people touch us there this stuff like that but there's but but what other you know so immediately this kind of almost this erotic quality can be recalled of course it could be tender like meat i don't know <laughs> you know meat can be tender uh, that kind of softness or you know oh my shoulder's feeling a bit tender at the moment it's a bit sore you know that's that that's not a pleasant kind of tender is it so again we have different varieties of tender right away and how do we apply it to the button i don't think there's one particular way that we're meant to the whole point is is that she's chosen a word and put it next to another word knowing that it would through the associations of the words of each other especially by using words that have more than one meaning she can spark off all these different associations and create the ambiguity. So when you look at tender buttons, other people have pointed out now throughout the text, people have found also, I mean, for instance, just the fact that it describes objects within a house that is where, that is where two women are living together in a romantic relationship. That in itself is quite provocative. 
and so people sort of and there's been a lot of other things like just talking about you know oysters and even some of these things in the in what i've just read to you about the cushions and tassels and stuff like that but there are some some certain sort of erotic qualities people find particularly erotic qualities that have a have a lesbian erotic quality to them so so tender buttons again people go back to maybe thinking there's a female erotica aspect to it um and some people have even gone to make the pun tend her buttons as well um these are all things that just again make up this multiplicity of meanings within the text now rather than go over the whole thing because i can't i could choose any line and talk to you about it there's a few that i just underlined in yellow some of them are because they're just quite famous lines that people know from the poem and, and others are just more lines that i myself found my own brain sort of tripping off on now you might not have noticed these ones you might have had your own experience but i think a lot of this is now going to be me just talking to you about my own associations with the poem and and what I got from that particular reading and some previous readings of the poem, poems, prose poems. So a lot of people often point in the first prose poem, a carafe that is a kind of that sorry, carafe that is a blind glass. There's a there's a quite famous line which is the difference is spreading, and people almost feel that that's something about that line. Being that it appears at the beginning of the text, even though we already know now that it was never intended to be at the beginning of the text, the, the text, the difference is spreading. And it's that idea, isn't it? We've just looked at tender buttons and we came up with many. Yes, we looked at one word, but then in how we looked at that word, different meanings sprung up already. And these meanings went off in their own direction that we could follow and then feed back into the text. So the difference is spreading. People often talk about maybe that saying something about how this text functions. Um, it's often said actually for tender buttons is a text that more people very few they say very people have read and enjoyed and more people have just kind of spoken about and argued about it's certainly a text that that some people have seen obviously is very influential some people think it's a masterpiece some people think it's just terrible it's awful it's pretentious rubbish and some people think she's having a laugh she's taking the mick she's just like writing a load of old rubbish and sort of maybe intended this vanity publisher to um to publish it and uh, that was the joke who knows so let me just look at a few more of these of these lines so the difference is spreading we've looked at already now if we jump past glazed glitter um and that's interesting as well i mean again there is no gratitude in mercy in medicine there can be no breakages in japanese that is no program i have no idea what that means um and but then i start finding meaning when i say that is no colour chosen. It was chosen yesterday, but showed spitting and perhaps washing and polishing. I thought about a shoe, you know, so I don't know what the glaze glitter is. But I thought about a shoe in that moment, a shoe that's chosen from a pile of shoes. And it showed spitting and perhaps washing and polishing, which is, you know, spit and polish with shoes. I don't think of any other clothes people spit on, any other sort of objects that people choose that have been spat on, you know. <laughs> shoes it's all right but obviously you're not choosing a cream cake are you oh i like that one it's been spat on you know at least you don't know it's been spat on but i don't know you know maybe the, the baker doesn't like you so if i go to a substance in a cushion there's something erotic about that isn't there don't you think a cushion the softness of a cushion and there is a substance inside it i can see what people people talk about 
I mean, when she says sugar is not a vegetable, I, I don't know really what she means. But then I, I follow on to lines such as callous is something that hardening leaves behind that will be soft if there is a genuine interest in their being present as many girls as men. So um, callous, let's 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 look at the beginning. Callous is something that hardening leaves behind. We all think of callous probably on a palm, don't we? We think of a callus on a palm. But again, callus is a word with more than one, one meaning. Can we have other meanings when we read it? Callus, like callousness, like the emotion of being callous, of being uncaring and cruel, is something that hardening leaves behind that will be soft. Is there has a genuine interest in there being present as many girls as men. And what's all that about, you know? Genuine interest in there being present as many girls as men. What does that mean? Is, that, is there something erotic going on there? Um... Other lines, you know, again, we're talking about a cushion, but a circle of fine cardboard and a chance to see a tassel. I think we all have our associations with tassels. Maybe I'm just being particularly lurid in my reading of this poem. And then following on from that, this thing about there being a softness, if a girl, as many girls are present as men, as men, we, we, we this really curious line that I have to read over a few times to really, because it feels like something is being asked, something specific, the way the sentence is structured. But goodness me, you have to do some mental gymnastics in order to get to what you think it might be here. So what is the use of a violent kind of delightfulness if there is no pleasure in not getting tired of it? It sounds perfectly reasonable, doesn't it? Until you start thinking about what it actually means, because it feels like we have a shot here. But at the same time, you have to jump. You have to do a few cartwheels, don't you? So what is the use of a violent kind of delightfulness? Fine. What is the use of a violent kind of delightfulness? That could be about sex, couldn't it? A violent kind of delightfulness, this kind of very strenuous physical activity that two human beings have together. Sometimes humans have with themselves. And, um, and you know, a violent kind of delightfulness. I could go with that. I can see the erotic readings of this poem here. So what is the use of a violent kind of delightfulness? Now let's hear the clause of this question. If there is no pleasure in not getting tired of it. It's a double negative, isn't it? If there is no pleasure in not getting tired of it. I still can't quite get it around my brain. What is the use of a violent kind of delightfulness if there is no pleasure? You've probably worked it out already in not getting tired of it. So, right, okay, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, so so basically you don't get tired of this kind of pleasure and um, and and it has a use because there is pleasure in not getting tired of this kind of pleasure. So... There's, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question. There's no question marks as well. There are lots of lines that are phrased like questions and they don't have a question mark. You know, it has what is at the beginning of a sentence and then there's no question mark, which in itself, again, it's, it's the multiplicity of meaning that exists within the poem, which is created with these very deliberate grammatical and punctuational effects that Stein creates. So I'm going to unsnag my brain from that little brain blooming fawn and i'm going to go a bit further down we're still in we're still we're still in the realms of substances in a cushion and i just think this is great this is a line here a seal and matches and and a swan and ivy and a suit now there's a word with two interesting meanings seal you know it could be the seal of a letter it could be a seal in a cushion maybe it's been stitched shut and sealed I don't know. Has something been sealed within the cushion? Is that what it is? Or I'm just going out there. Has a seal actually a, a, an animal 
actually made, actually kind of flopped its way into this poem here? Or is it some allegorical seal? You know? Why, why am I saying this? Well, there's a swan there, so why can't there be a seal? A, sw- a seal and matches and a swan and ivy and a suit. I suppose the matches could be swans, but that, that brand probably wasn't around in 1914, or maybe they were. A seal and matches and a swan and ivy and a suit. What is what is this doing? You know, what has this got to do with with the cushion? We're we're right out there because I start making cushion associations, and then I'm I'm I'm, I'm we're off somewhere else, aren't we? Okay, but I like that. I just like the ambiguity of using the word. If we're looking at words that have two meanings, seal is a fantastic one. Okay, a sight, a whole sight, and a little groan grinding makes a trimming, such a sweet singing trimming. It just feels very sensual. And a red thing, not a round thing, but a white thing, a red thing, and a white thing. Whatever that might be. Now, a cushion, you know, again, a cushion is something that's kind of got something inside it. There's, that just that could have come out better, but I, I'm just going with that. Okay, this this inside of insideness and outsideness and softness. I just feel that she is playing around with with images that could have erotic or sensual connotations to them. I'm jumping past a lot of the coffee, and okay, a line that I just find beautiful: a settling of stationing cleaning is one way not to shatter, scatter, and s- scattering. <laughs> think it's beautiful can't read it out properly the settling of stationing cleaning is one way not to shatter scatter and scattering i kind of just like the sound of shatter and scatter and scattering maybe it's the appearance of some rhyme in the middle of his prose poem um i found it quite beautiful and i didn't understand a word of it the settling of stationing cleaning is one way not to shatter scatter and scattering why don't you want to shatter scatter and scattering and it's also scatter as a noun and then scattering isn't it as a, as a, as a verb um and a little bit more a little bit more i don't think there's much to say to tell the truth i could give my interpretations but i think um i, I just think it's it's better if i just just leave it in the second and, and wander off on one we'll just talk a bit more about the poem as a whole i think rather than me taking you through individual bits it's just i'm choosing some of these individual bits from my last reading reading so if and it's an, again another lovely interesting line here um, nothing elegant and it's just one little one little paragraph here a charm a single charm is doubtful if the red is rose and there is a gate surrounding it if inside is let in and there places change then certainly something is upright it is earnest the bit that really i really liked is if inside is let in so she talks if the if the red is rose and there is a gate surrounding it so it feels like we are outside among red roses and maybe a gate surrounding these roses so maybe we're looking out into a garden and a gate and then it says if inside is let in i don't know why i love that idea the concept of insideness being let in um is it is it the sense of being a human being and that our consciousness feels locked inside our heads and our bodies but if we if we do some kind of meditation stuff, it doesn't necessarily feel like that, actually. But this the standard psychological state most people feel like they have is that they're sort of locked inside their heads and inside their bodies. And they're looking out through their bodies into an outside world. And so the the idea of if inside is let in, the, the inside is outside our inside, isn't it? <laughs> it just keeps going on, doesn't it? If inside is let in. 
or is this us looking at the inside of something and its insideness being let into our consciousness there's something quite quite almost sort of fractal about that image the idea of inside being let in that i really liked that i kind of played around with in my brain a few times when i when i listened to it so i could read more of this but i'm not going to because i don't want to turn it into some stupid little guessing game where i'm just reading out little excerpts and then saying it could mean this it could mean that because i think you've just got the idea of how a person might travel through this text and i think i'd rather inspire you to have your own little journey through tender buttons um it's it's all public you know it's all open uh what's the word uh, public domain so you can just find it on project gutenberg i think and read it and have your own little reading for free of tender buttons um it's a, but it's just it's a really curious interesting poem and i i, I do actually quite enjoy reading it I, I sometimes if i'm not in the right mood for it i'd find it annoying as well if you found it annoying but but just being able to actually just relax and just pass my attention through it i can i find it to be quite rewarding it's it's an interesting little construct for human attention to travel through and human imagination to travel through and to have its own experience. So, um, this big loud truck went by then. So if I was going to say anything about the form, prose poetry, I might as well say, say a little bit about prose poetry. There's one book that I use in my teaching for first year students in a module about poetry. And it's by Furness and Bath. And it's, uh, I think it's writing poetry and introduction or reading poetry and introduction. I can't remember. It's a bloody book I teach every week and I can't remember. But, um, there's always remember a chapter i've got a bit of beef with them because they think that a prose poem isn't a poem because they feel that lineation is one of them is the most defining aspect of a poem otherwise it's just elaborate prose and that prose ultimately is prose and poetry is poetry and i call bs on that the reason being one lineation i get it it creates stuff like the double pattern the double pattern is when um, we have the pattern which might be how a sentence runs through and ends and then the pattern that sometimes is dictated by how rhymes exist in the line and sometimes it's a pattern made by the syllables or stress syllables in a line where we end the line and move on to the next line and how that often there are two patterns at work the pattern of grammar and sentence construction and then the pattern of maybe sounds such as rhyme and meter and rhythm and how those patterns resolve themselves into lines and how these two patterns work together. And you still get the double pattern in modern poetry as well, where the line breaks might not be dictated. It might They might be dictated by the ambiguities that you can create by breaking a line at a certain point. Um, but you don't get that with prose poetry. You don't get that little moment when the eye snaps back to the beginning, to the, to the, to the margin and carries on again. And that little gap much like the saccade that we have spoken about that little gap that happens when you do that but so what i find it's more of an elaborate prose you know why because if it uses certain strategies such as the the deliberate use of imagery in such a sense yes it might not be maybe we, we, if we look at some modernist novels sure they use the same tactics and the same ideas and we wouldn't necessarily call them poems but the only thing that doesn't 
stop us calling them poems is the fact that they've not been they've deliberately not been presented as poems they've been presented as novels and you could quite easily present them as poems and they'd be accepted as poems by people who accept prose poems as poems such as me so i don't really think it's a good enough and the reason why is because i believe um what the um the structuralist critics um Sveten Todorov i think that's his name said when he pointed out that there's and i can't remember his exact wording but he says there's no there's no such there's no such thing as poetry there are but there are various conceptions of poetry that vary from um place to place year from year and even poem to poem and i and i go with him there there's various schools of thought and schools of criticism and ideas of poetry but I don't think anyone's particular, you know, there's one particular right one out of all of those. Sometimes they cross over, sometimes they violently disagree. And that's the position I take on poems such as this and prose poems. And with that, I think, while I feel I might have plenty more to say, it's time for me to turn to my friend, the pro wrestling legend, Ric Flair. Um, it's because it's time for me to wander off on one or, as Ric Flair would put it, thank you very much, Ric Flair. So what am I going to wander off on one about today? That's an acronym, just in case you didn't know. Woo, wander off on one. You see what I did there? Man, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, right? I'm, I, you know, maybe I'll just talk about my maison scene, eh? For like five minutes, maybe. And shall I tell you, so Gertrude Stein, she's got a Paris salon, hasn't she? On my desk right now, I've got a monitor that I can see a dark reflection of myself. I've got a beard trimmer, which I bought yesterday from Sainsbury's. Um, I've been quite beardy. Feel that? Hear that? There we go. That's your ASMR for today. Um, I have a keyboard and I have a bottle of water. And I've got my iPad, which the screen's gone off now because I've I've read from all my notes in, in this podcast. And then I have some some pieces of paper that my oh oh I did jury service and I've got this form here that I um have to fill in to get my expenses back, which will be my travel and my per diems. It was a really uneventful jury service in the end. It was a, a fraud trial um, in which the the only real victims possible victims were an insurance company, and uh, we found the person innocent because of a, a lack of. Of, of evidence to meet the burden of proof so that was that was a pretty good one for jury service i think it wasn't too stressful in one sense and i didn't send someone to jail in the other sense so that was nice so um but i'm still probably going to try and claim some money back because like even if it ends up being about 30 quid still 30 quid i can spend on beer in it so what else what else i have to my side i've got these kind of ikea blinds i've been buying and they're the ones you just stick up sorry there's no sponsorship of ikea going on but they're these blinds which are really easy just to stick up and you can cut them to shape very quickly and stuff and then there's some poetry books there's the princeton encyclopedia of poetry and poetics which is just a glorious doorstep doorstop and whenever i open it whenever i open this glorious doorstop something illuminates me it's amazing my ignorance stares back at me as i see something that i didn't know as much as i fancy thinking i know about poetry and then I got this big old bottle of water that I bought, um, which I might have already mentioned, but I try and drink a plenty of water and I drink a lot more water at the moment. Oh, and finally, right, I've got a fountain pen and um, 
bit more product placement. A like turn 1917 notebook because you can write with fan and pen in, in these pages. They're very good quality so the ink doesn't bleed through. But it's just for writing one project that I can't tell you about. <laughs> but it's just me writing a sequence. And I it was in my head for about a year. And I, 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 I thought, I've got to do this. I've got to do this sequence. And finally, I just bought a, a book and a, a pen specifically for it. And I try and find at least a little bit of time once a day just to sit down and even just write a few lines or write a whole page. And it's wonderful. I like kind of abandoning my digital um, fealty sometimes. So this is what's been staring back at me. And all the little associations I have with it while I was recording this 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 podcast in this slightly new location. And I, I'm yeah, there's nothing, you know, I went off on one and that was a bit dull, wasn't it? I just told you what was on my desk and I did, really didn't have anything special to say apart from talking a little bit like that. I'm writing a bit more poetry again. Um, but <laughs> um, this is how I record it now and it's a lot easier. But you might find, I don't know, tell me, let me know. My Twitter handle is Poet Nile, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L. And um, you can email me at rustysonnets at gmail.com. Um, how has the sound has has the sounds of South London intruded on your listening of this podcast? Have you been unable to to recreate the Maison Seine of this Parisian salon apartment? If um, with, with my dulcet tones telling you we're probably somewhere around London and the sound of traffic outside. I don't know if I intruded it on it or not. I have no idea really how this sounds until I finish editing it. But um, I'm, I just still, um, yeah, so let me know because there are a few different things I've done in recording this episode, which are different to what I normally do. And a lot of these things are things that are going to save me a bit of labour. So... If if it's not quite as good, let me know. Just be honest. If you don't like the sound of it or whatever, let me know and I'll see if I can do something else. But hopefully it's been it's just good to get back on the get back on the board, get back on a scoreboard, isn't it? You know, just to keep on creating my podcasts. Well, here's a little deeper something to go on about. Right. Um, part of my brain when I was not able to post for two weeks in a go was was, was caught up in that productivity mindset that guilt trip you must be creating right now you'll lose out algorithms will forget about you you'll lose your audience um none of that is important none of that is important i think because firstly if i put something rubbish out that's out forever isn't it you know i'd rather put out something good good enough and then if that takes you know you're late you're only late for a few weeks but you're rubbish forever so that was reason number one. And reason number two is it's just like quality of life. It's just, you know what? I'm not a slave. I, I enjoy I do this because it's fun. I do this because I enjoy it. I do this because it's an ob it's not an obligation. And I think we should feel that way about all our creativity and all our art and, and always toe that line about, you know, this feels good. I feel really good finally recording this podcast again for the first time in weeks. But I'm glad that there wasn't a point where I didn't feel good because I felt obligated to release something, you know? And I, and I hope you guys are that way as well. I know deadlines are different <laughs> when we we're given deadlines by other people or have agreed deadlines of other people, but when you're making something yourself, be easy on yourself, you know, just, just get it out there when you can get it out there. You haven't got a team. I haven't got a bloody team, 
You know, you're not paying a bunch of people to do this with you. Um, if that's the case, if you are literally a lone creator making your stuff, just don't get caught up in that productivity rubbish. You know, don't worry about it. Productivity is just this weird religious mindset that we have in late capitalism. And it will get smashed by whatever tyranny we bring upon ourselves soon after, I promise. So that's about that on the subject of that. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast or any of the other podcasts in this series, then um, please share it. Please share it, shout, say nice things about it on Twitter if you like. If you want to review us on iTunes, say, say, say some nice things there if you're listening on iTunes. Um, if you want to just tell someone face to face in your day to day, -day contact, to listen to this podcast then please do especially i'm always meeting people at my open mic you say i know nothing about poetry and i'm like well you'll learn a bit more if you listen to this and they're like oh all right then so maybe listen, you know i don't know if you're one of those people um but i hope hopefully that you've learned something about poetry from this podcast and you've learned something about poetry from all the other ones thank you for listening hope you have a really good week ahead if i don't produce another podcast in the next week then i'm sorry but i will eventually pro produce one i promise but for now, hopefully we're back week to week and I will be back next week. Have a good one and don't let the productivity Nazis get you down. Cheers.